0: the Institute. Institute
1: Institute for Justice,
0: the National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello, and welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. We're recording this on Groundhog's Day, February 2nd, 2022. And we are very pleased to have a special guest with us today. Joining us is Alexandra Seitlin, She is an attorney in New York City. She has over 20 years of experience in criminal defense and immigration law. Before that, she worked for the Legal Aid Society's Criminal Defense Division, and she's a graduate of Cardozo School of Law. She recently won a victory at the Third Circuit for a client who was trying to establish his United States citizenship. When I read this, I was very struck by how awful The government behaved. And of course, we love to talk about that on Short Circuit. So I reached out to her and she graciously uh, accepted our offer to talk about that case. So, Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Also joining us today and also making her first appearance on Short Circuit is Tori Clark. She is a Law and Liberty Fellow with the Institute for Justice in our Texas office. Uh, She clerked on the Third Circuit and is a graduate of the Texas School of Law in Austin. And she's going to be talking about a Fourth Circuit on bonk case, and that's the correct pronunciation, as you you know, from the last couple episodes, Um, that is about uh, censusing issues. So, Tori, welcome to Short Circuit.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Great. And we will get to Alexander's case in just a moment. But first, uh, what many of you are waiting for is we had a selection process. I wouldn't really call it a competition, but a selection process the last few weeks to try to find out the most beautiful courtroom in the federal courts of appeals. Uh, A lot of you wrote in with your suggestions. We heard from on Twitter from many of you, a lot of Ninth Circuit fans, um, the Courthouse, the Pioneer Courthouse in Portland, the courtroom there got a big hand of applause, also a round of applause, also um, the the, uh, the San Francisco Courthouse, courtroom one, the um, Pasadena Courthouse, a lot of Ninth Circuit fans. But unfortunately, that wasn't where we ended up. We had a committee of five uh, experts. Actually, we, we really have no expertise in this a- uh, area at all, uh, but we selected instead the 10th Circuit's library courtroom at the Byron White Courthouse in Denver. Um, it's a beautiful courtroom with, uh, with a library of law books. I think some of us were just suckers for the, the the books on the shelves. And so that is a selection. Now I should say there was a very strong dissent from two of the members of the panel for the en banc courtroom in, of the 5th Circuit for the John Minor Wisdom Courthouse In New Orleans, I think a lot of that is due to the um, uh, the understanding of what John Minor Wisdom did on the Fifth Circuit and his influence on civil rights law. So we we get that. uh, We get that the courtroom is a great courtroom. A lot of Fifth Circuit clerks were very adamant about that. In fact, but the the deck was not stacked with Fifth Circuit clerks. And so it went to the Tenth Circuit. So thanks, all of you, for joining in, uh, either writing into us or on Twitter. It's been fun to learn a bit about the, the courtrooms of the federal courts of appeals. But Alexandra, um, we want to hear a little bit about the Third Circuit and, uh, and what happened to your client there. For, first, I should ask, given the last couple of years, you probably argued this uh, virtually. Is, is that right?
1: Yes, we did.
0: Well, we, Tori um, clerked on the Third Circuit. Maybe we'll hear a little bit about her, the, the court, courthouse she clerked in in a little bit, uh, although that was also during COVID. But uh, Alexandra, tell us about your, your case and, uh, and your clients.
1: So this is a life-changing decision for my client, Mr. Jafal. He came to the United States with his family when he, as a lawful permanent resident when he was 11 years old. All his family resides in the United States, and he was facing deportation to Jordan if he was not declared a citizen. So um, under, the, under the statute, um, under the prong of the statute in, this, in dispute in this case, a provision allowing a child born in the, outside of the United States, um, he can acquire a citizenship If um, he's under the age of 18 and one of his parents naturalizes and he's in that parent's legal custody and his parents uh, were divorced or legally separated. So Mr. Jafal's father was naturalized when he was 17 years old. He submitted documents from Jordan to prove that he was in sole legal custody of his father when his father was naturalized and that his parents were separated. And the government moved for a summary judgment, and the district court granted it. It ruled that the Jordanian divorce is not entitled to be recognized under the Th- Third Circuit law, um, citing another case, parent v. parent, not a um, naturalization or, or um, immigration case, and finding that divorce the separation proceedings must be Bilateral to be recognized, meaning that both parents have to be in person or uh, appear through counsel. And um, the court found that Jafal's mother did not participate in the divorce in any way and rejected the documents under the principles of comedy. And in Jordan, it is legal for a husband to obtain irrevocable divorce judgment unilaterally and if the marital separation persists for three months after, that revocable divorce becomes final. The court also held that the Churitanian divorce was not issued by a court of competent jurisdiction in the U.S. The jurisdiction is based on domicile, and he found that Jafal's parents were domiciled in Ohio. Um, Mr. Jafal filed a motion to reargue and was denied, and he appealed to the Third Circuit, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals concluded that both conclusions in the district court were were made in an error and reversed the judgment, and remanded it with instructions to issue a judgment to declare Mr. Jafal to be a national of the United States. So the court rejected. the the principles of comedy and said that they're not applicable in this case because government is not challenging the validity of the Jordanian divorce decree and um, the court concluded that the concepts of comedy um, are, are not applicable because the Congress determined public policy in a derivative naturalization context and it is to be based on Naturalization of a custodial parent. So, um, the, the analyzing the legal separation prong of 1432-3 under Morgan and Spichan leading cases, the court found that that section, the, under that section, the inquiry is limited to whether valid divorce or legal separation exists under the law of the state or foreign nation. So, generally, a foreign decree is required, but some jurisdiction might consider parties legally separated without any governmental imprimatur. The court should not impose, it ruled, any requirements in addition to those under the state of foreign law. So, for example, in Espichan, uh, the Peruvian Code was uh, analyzed and there, a union ends by death, absence, mutual agreement, or unilateral decision. And the Spichan parents did not present a document, just an affidavit, and that was accepted. And in that case, the court envisioned some jurisdictions that I would consider parties legally separated if they lived separately for a period of some time without a government in premature. And... It found that Mr. Jafal's case was such a jurisdiction, so it was a groundbreaking case in that in that way. Um, and it, the court also ruled that the Jordanian court had authority to alter Jafal's parents' marriage because both parents' marital both marital country and the state where father lived at naturalization could exercise authority. Over the marriage for the purposes of fourteen thirty two a.
0: Well, so the thing that struck me about this case is it it the, there are footnotes with copious uh, statements in the record about the that this that his father had sole custody of him that his parents were divorced. Everyone recognized his parents as as divorced. So all the facts seem to play out, and yet the government just. Fought tooth and nail in in ways that it doesn't seem that, to make any sense. Is this is this your a normal um, behavior in the part of the uh, the immigration authorities? Do you do you find and that for some reason there was a technicality they wanted to, to hang their hat on, or was this an unusually hard uh, slog for for this man given you know given the somewhat unusual family family uh, background that he has.
1: Um I think that it's probably a combination of of factors. I think that on the court below the the case Chan case was not analyzed at all. In other words, it it was brought up on the motion to reargue for the first time. And and I think that the court rejected it rejected it at that point rejected to accept the motion to reargue or reopen at that time because it it claimed that the the case was not analyzed in the process of the summary judgment so um i represented mr jafal at that stage and i think had the the case been argued it would have turned out a
2: little bit differently
0: gotcha and Torah, you you spent some time at the Third Circuit. Uh, what was your reaction?
2: Yeah, uh, I, there were a, a few things that I, you know, struck me from here. But it's sort of my main was question for Alexandra: Do you think that at least some of the government's pushback here was just sort of based on um, like perceived unfairness in the Jordanian divorce process or in the custody agreement? um or sort of like the underlying facts as opposed to the law or do you think that the government was really worried about shaping the law here too
1: i think that um the government was was worried about shaping the law because in aspechan the court was poised to take the next step right to uh, to to expand its its ruling and and this case was presented such opportunity for the court so uh, the government was concerned, I think, about that expansion of uh, this case, as Uh
2: And then I also had a question about, uh, you know, at one point the court says that the government was relying on principles of comity to argue that it should win. Um, but you know, maybe this is my just incomplete understanding of that doctrine, but doesn't comity mean that you're recognizing the other jurisdictions' power? Um, so how was the government using those kind of doctrines to support its its position?
1: Yes, but um, the, the, there's public policy argument that, it is, that they were advancing and, and saying that we we do recognize uh, foreign jurisdictions' judgments, but we also have a public policy concern because if if this is a unilateral decision and uh, the wife had no part in it, then we're as as a matter of public policy, we will reject it.
0: And that's one thing I I was I was a little struck by is that of course. If you get divorced, say in the United States, that that generally you need both parties involved, but there is such a thing as say a default where you don't have you don't have a spouse who who responds and so the court is able to take it into their own hands and and to end the marriage. So it's not like it's completely unheard of to have a divorce that looks a little bit like this. And there are, you know, there are um, family laws all over the world that are in all different ways, and usually we just take them as they come because that's that's comity. So, um, I I thought that that and this was by no means you know something sinister. It seemed in um, in family law, it seemed like the this is a from the facts they had this is the couple that in most countries these days would be getting divorced um you know there wasn't anything nefarious uh, on at least on the face of it about it so the fact that the the government did fight for this um, did strike me as very unfair especially this man who's been here what 40 years now and um, and he's living as an american and was, has been here since he was a minor so um, i was i was glad that the the court seemed to get that um uh, when all was said and done
1: the court was terrific it, it, it was so much fun to argue this case before this this panel um they were great and you're right you're correct about um the principles of of comedy there is a default provision uh, they were concerned about i think notice um that she she didn't have notice of this process but she did. It was apparent from the judgment itself that the court notified her. But the Court of Appeals dispensed with this whole notion of comedy. They said it doesn't apply in this case because the, the Congress already provided for public policy. And and the public policy is, is derived from the statute. And that statute says that, you know, if your if your father is naturalized and that's unilateral, right? Your father is naturalized and you're in his custody and your parents are separated or divorced, you're you 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 get to be a citizen. So the principles of comedy apply to uh in, in divorce proceedings, but not in naturalization proceedings.
0: Well, we're very glad that uh, that you were able to straighten this out at the Third Circuit, and and uh, it, it's great that to have you come on and, and talk about this story. Uh, we're now going to move down the coast to the Fourth Circuit, um, where we have a different a different kind of situation, but um, again, one where uh, the the government perhaps did not play its uh, hand um, f- all that fairly. Uh, but also there was some trouble with uh, defense counsel as well. So, Tori, wouldn't you tell us about uh, United States versus Freeman?
2: Yeah. So, like you mentioned, this case is out of the Fourth Circuit out of South Carolina, so a little bit further down the coast. Uh, it deals with the Sixth Amendment's guarantee of effective assistance of counsel, um, which, in sort of nutshell, is your legal right to have a decently competent attorney's help um, if you want it in your criminal case. Um, And specifically, this case deals with what it looks like in the context of sentencing. Now, as a caveat, uh, I hope you'll hang with me because sentencing, I'm sure Alexandra knows as a criminal defense attorney, can get really technical really quickly. Um, But it's really where the rubber meets the road in a lot of criminal cases, especially where defendants plead guilty. Um, It's really kind of the only... Um, really substantive part of their proceeding, where they they get input and in what's happening to them, um, and then that's where the criminal conviction ends up actually making um, you know, having an impact on the defendant's life. Um, so the the facts of this case are really sad uh, and reflect, I think, some common struggles in the nationwide uh, epidemic of opioid addiction and abuse. Uh, The defendant, Precious Freeman, was charged with possession with intent to distribute a couple different kinds of opioids. Um, And she was actually first prescribed opioids by a doctor for a legitimate injury. She was a teenager. She was seven months pregnant. She slipped and fell in the shower and broke her tailbone. And so a doctor prescribed her opioids um, and then ended up giving her blank prescription documents and allowing her to write her own prescriptions. Um, So Freeman unfortunately got hopelessly addicted to opioids. Um, She started uh, getting more and more illegitimate prescriptions and um, using about half of the prescriptions for her own self, um, and then selling about half to an acquaintance to support her personal habit. Um, And she ended up being so addicted that she took, at the height of her addiction, 60 to 80 pills a day. Um, so out of all of this very sad situation, uh, in 2017, Freeman pled guilty to federal drug charges, um, and there was no plea agreement between her and the government about what her sentence should be, um, so it just went before the judge for sentencing. Um, as some background, generally at federal sentencings, what happens is the government Um, uses the federal sentencing guidelines to calculate what it thinks the defendant's sentence should be. Um, It's based on a bunch of different factors, and the the guideline calculation produces a range of, you know, X number of months to Y number of months that the government then gives to the judge and says, we recommend that the, the defendant's sentence be somewhere in here. Um, and then the defendant has the opportunity to object to that guidelines range calculation if they want to. Uh, so here, Freeman's attorney initially objected to the government's calculations and had the court accepted those objections, that might've brought Freeman's sentence down by nearly a decade. Uh, so, you know, a really significant chunk of time, but then sort of inexplicably, Freeman's attorney withdrew his objections, um and said, quote, none of those objections reduce the number that is relevant to this court, which is just factually untrue, right? Like, it it could have taken nearly a decade off of her sentence. Um, And when Freeman objected to this withdrawal, uh, her attorney allegedly told her that they needed to withdraw because he didn't, or they didn't want to create a a quote-unquote hostile environment in, in the courtroom at sentencing. So after that, Situation. Uh, the federal trial judge ended up sentencing Freeman to 210 months, uh, which is 17 years and some change in prison. Uh, so, on appeal, Freeman argued that her defense counsel was unconstitutionally def- deficient, and the Fourth Circuit, sitting on Bonk, so the entire uh, circuit court, actually agreed with her. Uh, and generally speaking, it's really hard to win on ineffective assistance of counsel claims uh, because the defendant has to prove, among other things, that the defect in the lawyer's work prejudiced the defendant. Um, so at the guilt-innocence phase of proceedings, this is really difficult because the defendant has to prove that, but for the lawyer's shoddy work, the jury wouldn't have voted to convict. So that's a really high bar. Uh, but. In sentencing, several circuits, um, including the Fourth Circuit, have taken a more lenient approach, and they've basically said that if a defense counsel's error in sentencing causes a district court to miscalculate the federal guidelines range for that defendant, then that's a Sixth Amendment violation. Um, you don't have to, you know, necessarily prove that the sentence you know would have been different. Or it, there, there's an assumption that if the court has an incorrect guidelines range in front of it that, you know, it it might have been different. So the court here, the Fourth Circuit, said that there were two main objections that Freeman's attorney should have made uh, in the sentencing, and had the attorney done so, the guidelines range calculation would have been different. Um, First, the court said that the uh, Freeman's attorney should have objected to the drug weight that went into the government's sentencing calculation. Um, you know, the, the government based its range on um, uh, the number of pills that it alleged that Freeman was trying to distribute, um, but the court had previously instructed the government to take into account Freeman's own testimony on this point, uh, but the government didn't do that. Instead, the government uh, produced a number that was like twice as high as what Freeman said in her testimony, um, and then the government didn't produce really any much evidence to back up that much higher number. Um, and in addition, this number didn't account for the fact that Freeman personally used about half of the pills that she got. So uh, they were just calculating sort of the number that she received without actually con- considering, you know, how many did she actually try to distribute uh, so that that was the first objection, was the drug weight. The second objection the court said the attorney should have made um, was based on uh, the government's calculation that penalized Freeman for violating the conditions of her bond. Um, She was out on bond before sentencing, and she had left South Carolina and moved to North Carolina without anyone's permission, um, which was a violation of her bond. But uh, there was some really strong evidence in the record that the reason Freeman did this was because she and her children were evicted from their home in South Carolina, and they didn't have anywhere to go. So they moved back to North Carolina to Freeman's hometown, which is only about 40 miles away um and in that time Freeman didn't miss any court dates she attempted to contact her probation officer about the move um so you know she really wasn't trying to obstruct justice which is you know what the government was trying to uh, say that she she did and increase her sentence based on that. Um, So those are the two things the court said, you know, the attorney should have made these objections and counsel showed other signs of being unreasonably bad. Like for instance, uh, in a filing with the court after the sentencing, uh, counsel relied on a rule of civil procedure uh, in the case, which just completely did not apply because this is a criminal case rather than a civil case. That's literally, you know, your first day of of law school. Um, So you know, counsel was bad um, and sort of on, on its face. It's just, you know, this is a, a tale of, unfortunately, uh, you know, a, a bad apple defense counsel um, with their client. But I think this particular case is significant in a couple of ways. Um, first, I think it's a good example of constitutional guarantees working and having teeth. Um, you know, this attorney really didn't seem to give their client a fair shake in the sentencing proceeding um, that might have cost Freeman nearly a decade of, of her life, uh, potentially. So that's a good thing. I know we talk uh, in short circuit probably a lot in, in IJ's work about uh, you know where we could do better with the Constitution and not that this part of the law is perfect, but um, we really see it sort of having some teeth here. Um, And and second, I think this case shows a willingness on the part of the Fourth Circuit uh, to really genuinely scrutinize the kind of representation that defendants are getting in the sentencing context. Uh, The court didn't say that Freeman definitely would have won on either objection, but the court you know, just thought it was enough to say that Freeman had a strong argument on those points. And so the court should have been able to consider those arguments. Um, So I I thought that was was significant as well. And I will note that there was a dissent in this case, uh, which was joined by several members of the en banc court. uh, But even the dissent, didn't really disagree about whether the attorney's performance was deficient or not. Um, the dissent actually expressed concerns about the attorney's performance, uh, but wanted to have some more proceedings to just gather more evidence before the court made its final decision.
0: Alexandra, uh, you uh, actually practice criminal law, unlike uh, us at IJ, who, who nevertheless liked talking about it. What's, um, what, what was your reaction to uh, the court's ruling?
1: Oh, I I was very pleased with the court ruling it, it, was, it was very inspiring uh what really struck me is that the court um found that um that they didn't really have to um look for prejudice the prejudice was already established and that um um it was striking also why the lawyer who who knew what the deficiencies were, and who who knew that he knew how to make these objections, right? He understood it, and then he inexplicably decided not to pursue these um, very favorable points for his client. And also, I think, in light of the fact that the judge did sentence um, Ms. Freeman um, on the lower end of the guidelines, she would have been susceptible to to doing the same thing if the guidelines were brought down.
0: What, what do you think goes through, I mean, it, it could be this just woeful incompetence, but what do you think goes through, was going through the criminal defense attorney's mind and just giving up on these objections? Was it just totally misunderstanding how the how the process works or is there maybe something uh, else going on there
1: well it it sounded like he was pursuing this um this alternative um programming uh situation where he thought maybe if he gives up uh those arguments somehow he would it would be more he would be, the client would be in better position to, to get this uh, programming um, option. I, I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, and there actually was some evidence in the record, you know, that the attorney did pursue this alternative drug program, but the attorney didn't really know what was required for it. Uh, there are emails where the attorney says, I don't really know or understand what needs to happen here. Um, and doesn't seem like the attorney really did much outside research, at least from what we can tell on that either. So, um, you know, they chose to put all of their eggs in that basket and then not really pay attention to that basket um, either. So,
0: Well, uh, if you want to know how not to uh, defend a client who was facing um, many, many years in prison, we encourage you to read this case. And maybe you'll uh, you'll do better from it if you're uh, if you're a practitioner. Well, I'd like to thank our our guests so much for coming on. Alexandra, um, best of luck in your practice in New York City, and uh, it was great to talk to you.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: And Tori, uh, thank you for coming on Short Circuit. We'll see you again sometime uh, from uh, the great state of Texas. In the meantime, here in the in Minnesota, where uh, it is um, a little colder than it is in Texas and even New York City, negative uh, two this morning when I was dropping the kids off. Um, I would like to ask all of you to get engaged. <music>